You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of Islam, the real truth about the religion of peace. I'm Stephen Heiner, and with me, as always, is our guest for all of these episodes, Dr. Sergio Trifkovich. Dr. Trifkovich, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. Well, in our last episode, we ended a bit with the violence of Islam, and I wish that would be the end of that discussion, but it's going to be a recurring theme. Today, we're going to be delving a little bit more into the teaching, and I suppose we can start by by asking the question, when we say Islam is a religion, or a mere religion, is that really an accurate statement? Uh, Both yes and no. Because on the one hand, Islam does seek to satisfy the yearning which is uh, immanent to humankind for meaning and for purpose of existence. But on the other hand, the concept of uh, deity and uh, of God Almighty is so utterly transcendent in Islam that uh, it ends up in uh, a form of polytheistic or pantheistic uh, self-contradiction that uh, Allah ultimately is the only actor in the universe where everything is preordained and subject to his will and foreknowledge. So, while on the one hand, Islam does, uh, as I say, satisfy the yearning for meaning and fulfillment of uh, men uh, who who yearn for some kind of order in an apparently chaotic world. On the other hand, it's utterly uh, mono, uh, mon- when I say monotheistic, uh, what I really mean is uh, Allah-centered cult of absolute transcendence uh, prevents any meaningful theological discourse, and indeed it was formally closed in the 9th century AD, about two and a half centuries after the beginning of uh, Muhammad's revelation, and is based on strictly deductive and uh, intellectually not very stimulating form of discourse which is based on the finite texts of the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sunnah. Well, and also, too, Dr. Drivkovich, it feels to me that Islam is very circumscribed within the place of its origin. It doesn't have the, I wouldn't use the word tolerance, but I wouldn't use the word openness. It doesn't have the openness to situate itself within different cultural, economic, uh, governmental situations that, uh, let's say, Christianity does. Christianity is indifferent as to whether you're a monarchy or a republic or whether the the church has a favored role in your society. The church can, can make some arguments, but it doesn't say this is the way. Whereas Islam cannot tolerate plurality or, or differences of opinion on those matters. But that is, again, uh, rooted in the concept of Allah as the ultimate sovereign of all creation. Because once you postulate that only uh, Allah and his appointed caliph on earth are the legitimate source of authority, then of course any man-made 
constitution or law is uh, by virtue of being man-made, illegitimate and uh, illegal. Uh, we will talk about Sharia later on, but what I have to say is that it is indeed uh, the child of the desert. It is intellectually very simplistic and does not allow for the shades of uh, opinion and interpretation that Trinitarian doctrine of Christianity has uh, created through the centuries, resulting very often in heresies, in uh, uh, various forms of dissent, but nevertheless providing a constant source of inspiration because we are talking about interaction between God and his creation. Let's just remember the Sistine Chapel ceiling where Adam and God touch four fingers. Uh, in Islam, any notion of direct contact with Allah, the ultimate sovereign, is heretical. He is there to be obeyed and not to be known. Well, we are talking about Islam as a religion. So one of the things that we should probably address is the often cited five pillars of, of Islam. Could you tell us what those are, Dr. Trifkovich, and explain what uh, how they relate to your everyday Muslim? Uh, well, it starts with a very simple formula of belief uh, known as the Shahada. Uh, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And if you say that aloud, uh, you become a Muslim. You, you uh, basically accept uh, the... Well, you have to say it aloud between two Muslim witnesses, correct? That's right, yes. Uh, then there is the prayer with ablution, which can be desirably water, but if there is no water, even sand will do. That's salat. Uh, fasting, which is particularly rigorous during uh, the holy month of Ramadan, when from sun, sunrise to sunset you shouldn't either eat or drink. Almsgiving or zakat, where the recipients should be Muslims and the pilgrimage to Mecca or Hajj uh, for every able-bodied Muslim who can afford it at least once in his lifetime. Uh, there is also uh, uh, the participation in, in holy war, jihad, but it was not actually quoted in the original revelation as one of the five pillars. It is the result of hadith or the sayings of the Prophet as recorded by his contemporaries. What's the etymology of these, uh, Dr. Trifkovich? Where did these come from? I, I, I don't think, obviously, all of them are solely from uh, the mind of Mohammed. No. Uh, in fact, all of them are pre-existent in the Arabian pantheistic uh, pagan past. And in particular, uh, the pilgrimage to Mecca is a form of compromise to which Muhammad resorted in 630 AD in order to placate uh, the, the religious establishment of pre-Muslim Meccan uh, Quraysh tribe to which he himself belonged. And uh, it caused some degree of consternation among his early followers because the entire ritual of pilgrimage is uh, literally taken over from uh, pre-Islamic pre pagan practices, 
including uh, the kissing of the stone, including the circling around the meteor and the, the run from one hill to another, the stoning of the devil and so on. Uh, one of his early successes, uh, the second caliph, Umar, uh, after Abu Bakr, even said, do I really need to kiss this stone? Because uh, he took Muhammad's uh, rationalistic form of early professional belief seriously, but then in uh, subsequent years and decades and centuries, it was internalized by the Muslims as the integral part of the ritual, which you simply do not question. And that's a very important part of uh, Islamic legacy, because whereas uh, Christian liturgy and uh, beliefs and practices have been the subject of uh, centuries of disputation among the patristic fathers and uh, subsequently in medieval times, the Reformation and so on. In Islam, we have a strictly nominalistic form of belief and practice which is based upon the commandment, uh, which is not subject to rational analysis. And Dr. Rifkovich, you, you say that it's related to pagan practices, but we also see some relation to Judaic practices, correct? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in the early days, in fact, Muhammad hoped to win the Jews over to his revelation. And uh, before his final uh, day of reckoning with the two uh, Jewish tribes in, in Medina and, and surroundings, he even uh, re regarded his revelation to be a continuation of the Old Testament rabbinical tradition, so that, for instance, uh, uh, the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, practically coincided with the Muslim Eid al-Adha, at which sacrifices were being offered and animals slaughtered. Uh, likewise, he believed that uh, the, uh, uh, the legacy of Abraham uh, was in direct correlation with his revelation, which of course the Jews rejected. And it was only after their rejection that he uh, instructed his followers to pray not in the direction of Jerusalem, but in the direction of Mecca. And that's, by the way, when he starts uh, treating the Jews very harshly, which resulted in the extermination of, of the Jews in Medina. Now, the, uh, that, that you're talking about the posture of prayer from, from changing from Jerusalem to Mecca. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the prayers? Obviously, I think most of those of us who are, most of our listeners, Dr. Trifkovich, do not live in Islamic countries in which they are reminded five times a day about uh, the form of prayer. Can you tell us a little bit about the call to prayer, what those five times a day have to do with anything? Uh, the point is that originally uh, prayer was to be performed twice a day, but it was only in the, uh, the Medinan period that it was changed to five. One at sunrise, one at midday, one at around four in the afternoon, one at sunset, and one shortly before midnight. And uh, each prayer was to be preceded by ritual washing, 
and uh, Salat, the prayer, was meant to provide a sort of discipline and uh, the focus of daily life, which without failure was to be observed regardless of uh, any personal circumstances of, of the believer. Uh, he even instituted something called the Rakka, which is a unit of prayer, which uh, consists of very clearly defined uh, physical uh, postures of standing, bowing, standing up, then going down in prostration, sitting, prostrating again, standing up again. Uh, now, the important part is that there was a clear emphasis on the formal act of prayer, which does not include, not necessarily at least, uh, a very deep commitment on the part of the faithful when it comes to uh, contemplative and prayerful relationship to the Almighty. In fact, the ritual itself satisfies the need and whether and to what extent it is indeed seriously sincere and uh, deeply heartfelt is not really uh, treated as paramount. So the visibility of public ritual is what determined the bona fides of the Muslim. Well, and in a certain sense, Dr. Trifkovic, I can understand the appeal uh, it's simple, right? You, you're not thinking, am I in the state of grace? You're thinking, if I do these check boxes, everything's fine. It's, 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 it's an easy to follow religion. Uh, it's like coloring by number. Uh, but it also creates a certain deficiency of spirit, which has been evident through the centuries. First of all, because of the deductive nature of Islamic reasoning, it excluded the quest for scientific discovery and for a proactive attitude to the world around us. And already in medieval times, late medieval times, this became obvious when uh, the Westerners or Christian nations, first Portugal in the 15th century, then Spain in the 16th and Britain in the 17th, became masters of the waves. And when the application of uh, technology, uh, the gunpowder, the sextant, the internal steering mechanism for the caravels made uh, Christian Europeans the masters of the world, uh, conquering the Americas. So what happened is that uh, due to this insistence upon purely deductive method of uh, uh, reasoning, which is based upon the finite body of Allah's revelation as conveyed by his prophet and by the collections of deeds and sayings of the prophet, the Hadith, uh, we haven't had in the Islamic world that same quest for some what one might call, in, in shorthand, Promethean spirit of uh, inductive uh, quest for new knowledge and new vistas. And uh, this has created a fatal deficiency 
of the Islamic world vis-a-vis the European Christian world, which became obvious as early as uh, the 16th century uh, with uh, the collapse of the Ottoman attempt to conquer the Mediterranean world, the siege of Malta, and after uh, the siege of Vienna, the second siege of Vienna in 1683 became terminal. It was really from the end of the 17th century on that uh, the entire Islamic world uh, fell into deep slumber and state of chronic inferiority vis-a-vis the West until the very recent decades of their both spiritual and political and demographic revival. Well, you mentioned the Hadith. I want to get to that. Uh, Dr. Trifkovich, we have the five pillars. What um, What is Sharia law? This is something that we in the West hear a lot about all the time, but I don't think most people really know what it is. Can you explain what it is and, what again, what is its role for the, for the life of the everyday Muslim? Uh, the Sharia is much more than a mere legal code. In fact, one, one could say that... Uh, the Sharia is both uh, the legal code and the totality of uh, prescriptive experience. It includes not only uh, the rules of everyday behavior, the relations between uh, sons and, and fathers, the inheritance, Uh, the value of uh, women and their testimony, it is ultimately uh, the complete uh, and utterly prescriptive uh, code that regulates every single aspect of human existence. Uh, We cannot really talk about Sharia in uh, separation from the totality of Muslim teaching because those Westerners who say, okay, let the Muslims... uh, practice Sharia in the civil cases in the Western diaspora, let them apply uh, Muslim law when it comes to family matters, divorce, the relations between parents and and children and so on. Uh, What they're neglecting is the fact that Sharia postulates absolute sovereignty of Allah over all creation. And that therefore, Sharia is fundamentally incompatible with Uh, any form of human political and legal organization which is based upon non-Muslim sources and non-Muslim traditions. So when people say, okay, uh, let the Muslim diaspora in the West enjoy legal autonomy within uh, uh, the, the perimeters of tolerance which we practice, and there are many Western politicians who have expressed sentiments to that effect, it really betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of the Islamic code because Sharia is not a legal or not only a legal code, it is above all a political constitution which which is based upon the sovereign uh, who is unknowable, unreachable, absolutely transcendent absolutely commanding every thought and act that we perform and his authorized representatives in this world. Can we say it's not just a law, it's a lifestyle? 
more than a lifestyle, it is a very strict and clearly defined uh, set of rules and regulations how we should conduct our everyday life to every little detail, including, <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I must say some, some people would be uh, flabbergasted to hear so, including the way we should wash ourselves, including the way we should put on our shoes, including the way we should uh, conduct our sexual relations. Well, it's definitely quite prescriptive. The we have so we have the call to prayer. We have uh, Sharia, which, as you say, is much more than a legal code. In Christianity, we're used to the concepts of scripture and tradition helping to inform our beliefs and 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 how we practice those beliefs. What are their equivalents in Islam, and what are they? Well, uh, yes, uh, I must say that because the Quran does not provide guidance for everyday life, or certainly does not provide sufficient guidance, that's where the Hadith comes. And uh, there are four collections which are regarded as authoritative, and they really provide uh, an almost infinite uh, scope for interpretation. For instance, in Saudi Arabia, women are not allowed to drive cars. Why? Because uh, women were not camel uh, drivers in Muhammad's time. Uh, and by analogy, if uh, the car is the equivalent of the camel, if uh, women were not riding camels, then women should not drive cars. Uh, it also reflects uh, a certain fatalistic attitude to life, which is uh, noticeable in uh, the Ottoman attempt to take over some elements of Western technology and particularly military organization in the 19th century. But as German instructors noticed when uh, instructing their Turkish uh, cadets in artillery fire, they were not uh, overtly careful when it came to triangulation of the target, because after all, if it, it is Allah's will if the grenade will hit it or not. And whether we are uh, meticulous in our cal calculations or not doesn't particularly matter. In the same way, in Saudi Arabia, they don't have uh, a standard form of car insurance policy, because after all, how do insurers calculate the risk on the basis of past incidents. And uh, to try and calculate the possibility or prob probability of accidents in the future is shirk, it is sin, because you are trying by human facility of statistics to anticipate Allah's will, because if it is his will, there will be not a single accident for 10 years, or if it is his will, every car will crash in the next 24 hours. What is Sunnah? Sunnah is the recipe for rightful living. It is not a set of clearly defined rules and regulation. It is the totality of those. And what is particularly important to note is that Sunnah is contained 
in uh, the Hadith and uh, necessarily knowing the Hadith or even knowing the Quran by heart. I'm thinking of a Venn diagram, Dr. Trifkovich, and as you're, as you're speaking, I'm thinking, does Sunnah in relation to the Quran and the Hadith, do those, does that sit within Sharia? Or, or are they slightly overlapping circles? Uh, they are overlapping, except that Sharia is much more extensive because the Sharia is also uh, engaged in uh, regulating political behavior, in uh, regulating family relations, uh, legal uh, institutions, and uh, secular co concepts of uh, relationship between uh, the rulers and the subjects, uh, the dhimis or people of the book who are nominally protected, provided that they accept their institutional discrimination under the system of, of Islamic law. And uh, uh, the Sharia is the totality of human experience as codified by Islamic teaching, whereas the Sunnah is somewhat narrower and more religiously oriented uh, framework. You obviously had to do this research for your book, Dr. Trivkovich, but is it possible if someone, if one of our listeners were interested, is there an easy method to obtain these texts for a Westerner or for someone who doesn't read Arabic? Or is it quite a chore to try to understand uh, or try to get copies of this so that someone could better understand what they believe? Well, first of all, I would recommend to your listeners to get a copy of the Quran. And uh, there are various translations, and I would prefer not to express preference for any one of them. But uh, I think that uh, if you look at the way it is organized, and uh, if you look at the overlapping uh, repetitions of certain concepts and what occasionally sounds like an irrelevant story and then a distortion of Old Testament or New Testament uh, statements, you will see that, in fact, it is far from satisfying text. It is full of uh, illogical discontinuities and uh, uh, when the Muslims claim that it is the most perfect book that has ever been written, and of course the author is Allah Almighty, uh, one is left with a sense that uh, both the Old Testament and the New Testament are infinitely more sophisticated, more satisfying to the yearning of uh, the soul for understanding of the drama of creation and human existence, that it is indeed the product of, at best, half-literate camel driver from the desert, who in 622 became the ruler of Medina and the master of life and death, and uh, who became a warlord whose uh, revelation provided the political legitimacy for what was ever since throughout these 14 centuries to be a religion of conquest, domination, and singularly uh, uninspiring 
and ultimately unsatisfying quasi-explanation of who we are, what we are, and why are we here. Now, Dr. Ifkovich, my what I've experienced some time with speaking with Muslims, and I reference the fact that I've read the Quran, I met with skepticism, and then when I'm further probed, they said, oh, well, you read a translation. So they're able to dismiss anything that I, I assert about the belief because they can say, well, the Quran's not supposed to be translated, therefore nothing you say is valid. Do you find that this is something that you run into? Well, it is the equivalent of the medieval claim that unless you can speak and read Latin, you're not qualified to engage in religious disputation. And the Byzantines could have claimed the same about Greek. But that dilemma has been resolved by Saints Cyril and Methodius, who translated uh, uh, the liturgy and, and the scriptures into Slavonic, uh, to claim that only Arabic is the language of God Almighty, and that unless you speak and understand Arabic, you're not fit to understand Quran is absurd. Uh, languages are capable of translating uh, texts from one to another. I think that in the 16th century, uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam and others have proven this conclusively, Martin Luther also, and uh, there are various translations of the Quran which place different emphasis and different interpretations of cer on certain terms, but the overall spirit and meaning is quite clear. It is a spurious argument which is used really by the pursuers of takia, which is the Islamic art of dissimulation, uh, which is used to uh, conceal the ultimate objectives of Islam, which are eminently geopolitical, from, this, uh, from unbelievers. Well, there's, that's quite a lot today, and there's more for us to get into, Dr. Trkovic, but I think we will, we will end today's episode, and we look forward to our next one in which we'll continue to get into what, you know, what is Islam as religion, what are some of the ways that they believe in, and what do they think. We'll, we'll talk about the concept that you alluded to, what is Allah, what, is the after, what does the afterlife look like for them. Uh, and and the other creatures that inhabit uh, creation other than ourselves. As always, thanks for your time, Dr. Trifkovich. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.